Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our series in the second half of American history with podcast episode number seven. In number six, we started looking at industry, immigrants, and the cities throughout the United States in the years right after Reconstruction came to a close in 1877 through to the early 1900s. In that sixth podcast, we also looked at the impact of electricity, the actual lab of Menlo, at Menlo Park where Edison created that incandescent bulb. We looked at the rise of corporations and its benefits, the ideas of vertical and horizontal integration. But all of these things, while certainly we're producing many, many tax dollars and putting a lot of dollars in people's pockets throughout the United States and helping to put America as the dominant economic player on the world stage, there were downsides to that as well. And that's what we're going to take a look at in this seventh podcast, again in our series in the second half of United States history. First off, in terms of the mistrust of giant corporations, for example, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire of 1911 was had the highest number of people killed, 146 in all, in a single office building in a single day. Because the waste from the the shirts, the and other items being produced, wasn't being properly disposed of. And the dust was beginning to fill the air, making it not only difficult to breathe, but also unhealthy to breathe. On top of that, what is not commonly known is that the right, right amount of dust particles can actually be combustible. And a spark is what sent that building up in flames. Sadly, the shirtwaist company fire would hold the record in the United States for the most number of people killed, sadly, until 9-11. So within the mistrust as well, we see other reasons why there would be coming more and more criticism of corporate America would be, would be because of the drawbacks in the labor market. Working in this early part of the 20th century and the later, later years of the 19th century was truly an awful workday very long hours, low wages, and abysmal working conditions, that the ability to try to save enough money to try to get a leg up in life just seemed to be proved impossible, while entrepreneurs and the upper class seemed to be making more and more money. Parents were being forced to put their children into the workplace but what about the legislation that kept children out of the workplace? Without the predominance of birth certificates, legislation versus the parents' need for money, the parents would be winning out. If the parents didn't care, neither did the employer about how old the child was. So child labor was now going to become have some serious, serious negative issues that we'll see addressed when the progressive era begins 
that we'll talk about a few podcasts from now, episodes from now. But from there, we also saw the poverty and pollution was becoming rampant in the major cities. Filth was truly swallowing up the cities. By the mid-1890s, New York City alone had 120,000 horses registered in a relatively small area, dropping over a half a million pounds of shit a day, excuse the French, but it's true. When Hollywood glorifies, and I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong, but when we watch the likes of, say, an older series of Little House in the Prairie, okay, so I'm dating myself here, but watching a series like Little House in the Prairie or watch the movies of Clint Eastwood or John Wayne on horseback in the out west, we tend to look at the horses in nothing but a positive light and not that they're doing anything wrong. We're the ones abusing the animals more often than not. But the fact of the matter is those animals eat and what goes in has to come out. And have you ever really thought when you see these, these movies or these episodes on TV of a few people here and there on horses, it really wouldn't be the case in your major cities. When you have populations that are reaching the hundreds of thousands in our major cities now, you can only imagine the number of horses that are going to be around there as well. It would truly be congestion, not, of course, with congestion due to the uh, idea of cars, of course, at this time, but it would be people trying to navigate the streets, trying to get around horses, trying to get around buggies and carriages. And yes, what goes in those horses to give them the energy to get from point A to point B, what goes in has to come out, which is why in, in every city block in your major cities, there would be at least one, if not two yards, somewhere in the middle of the block, in between, of course, two buildings or two houses, where they would be used for nothing but horse manure. That individuals that would be expected to pick up after their horses would be able to bring their horse to one side or the other, hurl that manure, manure over the small fence that might separate it from the sidewalk, and be on your merry way. Can you imagine what this would smell like, though, especially on a hot and humid day throughout the major cities of America? And again, that's just the pollution as a source from the animals themselves that we are the ones putting them into service and use. But how about the pollution that's also coming out from the smokestacks now and the way that the average entrepreneur will look at a body of water as nothing but a wonderful place to put liquid waste and in some cases solid waste. So all of this was just beginning of which the negative ramifications of this, the true utter destruction of this, wasn't going to be witnessed and wouldn't be witnessed for decades to come. As a result of these major cities, it was bound to happen that you would have a lot of people that would be unemployed, either for no fault of their own or due to their own reasons. But as a result, whether you're working or not, your appetite's going to kick in several times a day. And as a result, to try to get that stomach filled, crime would skyrocket throughout the major cities. But as dangerous as that may seem, why didn't crime actually get to a level that made people terrified to go out into the streets, especially in a city like New York City. The sole idea or element that helped control the amount of crime being committed in the major cities was the debut of the mugshot and the psychological profile. Today, more than 12 million mugshots are taken yearly 
more than the population of Ohio, in order to be able to take pictures of known criminals, post them around the major cities when the authorities are looking for them. When a suspect is arrested and th thought to be committed or guilty of a crime, there would be new elements used to question these suspected criminals, and that would become known as the third degree. You've heard of that, I'm sure, when somebody says, hey, how did it go with the boss? Did you, and I heard you mess up yesterday with one of the accounts or you messed up on an order. Oh yeah, went in to see the boss. Why did I get the third degree? Well, what really does that mean? Taken in slang like that, it probably John led to believe that everything was thrown at you just this side of being fired. Well, in the criminal justice system, that wasn't far from the truth. But third degree, why three? Why wouldn't it be the first degree or the second degree? Because those were actually already being implemented. The idea is that if the police came across somebody that fit the pro psychological profile of a known criminal, much less perhaps had a resemblance to one of the many mugshots being taken yearly, the idea was to bring them in and the first degree would be applied. The first degree would essentially be persuasion. Hey, come on. We know that you're the one that looks like you're the one that's that's in this picture. We know that from what people are describing of the criminals that we're attacking, you clearly are that person. Let's just do us all a favor. and Maybe the judge will come down easier on you and just admit to being guilty of the crime. If the first degree persuasion didn't work, then the second degree was employed. That would be intimidation. Intimidation could start out benignly. Well, you don't want to admit your guilt and get a lesser sentence? Well, you're the one that's going to have to do the time, and it looks like we're going to have to send you to one of those prisons where very few people come out unscathed, much less alive. The use of intimidation wouldn't necessarily, though, of course, just stop with how they could mentally or psychologically scare the suspected criminal. It would flat out be just intimidating, threatening the use, and in some cases, the use of actual physical torture. Chicago would be perhaps one of the most notorious cities for their detectives and other higher-ups that would use inhumane forms of torture to get suspected criminals of admitting the crime that in some cases they did not commit just so they could get the pain to stop and for the detectives to be able to close the case and pound their chest and say, yet another case solved by me and the people in my unit. When the second degree, however, even then didn't work, that's when the third degree would be used. And the third degree would be the type of tactics that we hear in some cases our American military used on occasion. It would be the type of torture and pain that would be used by resembling that of the Japanese during the Second World War or the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam War. In some cases, bringing in family members and threatening or torturing them in front of the known criminal suspect just to exact a confession. So while this leads to definitely, <laughs> clearly a uh, decrease in the number of major crimes being committed in these cities, it also led, however, to a beginning degree of mistrust by the public towards the local police forces. At the same time that millionaires are making their millions and 
eventually billionaires their billions. What was also coming around at this time was become known as the gospel of wealth theory. The gospel of wealth was a theory among the elite that hard one, excuse me, hard work makes one rich. Being poor is nothing more than being the result of being lazy. It is a crude and obviously extremely inaccurate mindset that many of the elite had with this gospel of wealth theory. That I, Rockefeller, I, Carnegie, I'm rich because I'm not lazy, because I'm hardworking. And no one can deny that they were not hardworking. But the fact that the person that's scrounging through a garbage can to try to get a few scraps of food is doing that solely because they're lazy? What about individuals that truly have nothing but a string of bad luck? What about those that have had personal misfortunes in their lives that have put them on the edge? How about individuals with, at this time, undiagnosed learning disabilities, undiagnosed physical disabilities, or a combination thereof? Right? Please know, even though I used Carnegie in that example, not all millionaires at this time actually agreed with that philosophy. Carnegie himself abhorred the gospel of wealth theory and never wanted to be associated with it. At the same time, employees were finally figuring out how to retaliate against these abysmal working conditions at their plants, forming their first organized labor, that called the Knights of Labor that was open to all races, all gender, and all lines of work. And there in that description also was the seeds and the reason for its ultimate failure. The problem when you have a labor union that is open to everyone and every form of work is they lose their leverage. In the Knights of Labor, the results of this is that labor organizers learned from this mistake, which is why future labor unions would only focus on specific trades, carpenters, pipe fitters, plumbers, electricians, auto workers, etc. The more specific the trade labor union was, oftentimes the more result, the more positive results they would see. So what's going on in terms of all these people moving into these major cities, despite the fact that crime is somewhat rampant, Yes, the criminals are being uh, tried by some of the most inhumane crime-fighting tactics ever devised. But with all this going on, where are these people going, though, in these major cities? Because up until the late 1900s, a high-rise was considered a, a structure with no more than four or five stories. Heck, the building that I'm in right now is four stories tall. Nobody would ever dare to call this a tall building, much less a high rise. No, if we're going to cram ourselves into these cities as large as they are, if we're going to allow everybody that lives there to also work there and people in the outer suburbs to also come into the city, we're going to have to figure out a way how to make the land that we're living on, that we're standing on, be able to hold more people. And the one commodity that would make that essential to major city develop was nothing more important than that of steel. Steel was not invented in the late 1800s. It goes back far before that. The problem was is that the process to produce good, reliable, strong steel was just simply too expensive for common use all the way through the 1860s. 
Without steel, listeners, there would be no tall buildings. Now, if somebody was listening to this on Jackson Boulevard or on Van Buren Street in downtown Chicago, you might say, Chris, that's not entirely true. We did have relatively tall buildings, but yes, they were very few and far in between. They were unbelievably expensive, and they were brutally heavy. The reason being, if you want to pause the podcast here, go to your search engine and type in the name of this building. It's the Monadnock building. M is in Mary, O, N is in Nancy, A, D, David, and Nancy, O, C, K, the Monadnock building. Type that in and take a look at it. Look at the images. If you look at enough images, as I show my students, you'll see that there's taller buildings around it. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, that is still the tallest building in the world for its classification. What's different about that building? Take a look at it. Don't look up, look down. Look at the windows on the first level. Look at the doors. Something's different than you don't than you see in almost any other high-rise building. That's right. They're unbelievably thick. It's like they're not windows but portals. Why is the base so thick? Because it's made with granite. That entire 18-story structure does not have an ounce of structural steel in it. Oh, sure, there's steel, modern applications of steel, steel windows, steel doors themselves, etc., steel pipes. But at the time it was built, there's not a speck of iron or steel holding up that structure. That structure is standing solely for the purposes or reasons that it is solid granite built upon solid granite. When the building was done and completed and people started moving in, they noticed within a matter of months that people found themselves having to, shall we say, duck coming under the doors. Windows in the ground floors were popping as though somebody had thrown a rock through them, but that wasn't the case. What's going on, they wondered. The fact of the matter is the Monadnock building itself was so unbelievably heavy that within a year after it was built, it sunk an additional two feet into the ground because of the way the weight of it was making it settle. That is still, as I say, for its classification of a non-steel structure, the tallest building in the world. But if we're really going to go higher than that, then we need to be more creative with how we're using and can producing this element called steel. And once we figured out a way to make steel far easier and cheaper, well, we would start building structures that were not just high rises, but buildings that were so tall that they seemed to literally, quote unquote, scrape the sky, the age of the skyscraper. Andrew Carnegie, it was not his process. It was not his recipe or his formula. Rather, it was that of Henry Bessemer. But Carnegie learned about Bessemer's idea on being able to produce better steel, far less expensive, and far faster 
But the problem was that Bessemer lived in England. So Carnegie went to England to learn Bessemer's process, which should still only in the experimental stage. Carnegie couldn't disagree with what he saw in Henry's formula. The problem is that to put Henry's formula into actual fruition to see if it could work, Henry needed room that that little island nation of England just simply couldn't provide him. Back in the United States, room, land, oh, there's plenty of that. So Carnegie came back and he took a bet and wiped out his savings and built a steel processing plant that was larger than 80 football fields just outside of Pittsburgh, a place called the Cary Furnaces. It's an unbelievable plant that is a true skeleton of, a, of its former self. It's a bare, bare shadow of the mighty structures that once existed there for over a century. For my listeners in the United States, especially in the eastern half, type in the Cary Furnaces just outside again in northwest portion of Pittsburgh. Take a drive there and go on the tour known as the Rivers of Steel. You can look it up online. My international listeners, if you have the opportunity to visit the United States, fly into Pittsburgh or take the train in and take the two-hour tour of the Cary Furnaces. It is a tour, and believe me, I've been in many. I have toured the Great Wall of China. I've been inside the pyramids of Egypt. I've been to the Murder Museum in downtown Vienna, Austria. Don't ask. I've been on tours of the Nile River, tours throughout different places within the United States. But nothing is like walking through that last soul-living structure that once was, once was just one of over a half a dozen blast furnaces that were running 365 days a year, 24 hours a day for decades, producing and making America the steel producer of the world. Once that process turned into fruition to truly being able to pump out steel far cheaper and faster than it had ever been conceived before, Carnegie skyrocketed to become one of the five richest men in the world as a result. The price of steel, the price of it dropped over 80%, making demand skyrocket. From the beginning of the American Civil War in 1860, when America only produced a few thousand tons a year for those that could afford it, we were now producing 11 million tons in the year 1900 alone. Steel, ladies and gentlemen, would show how America would have an insatiable appetite to make all things made out of steel. It would become the steel belt of America all the way to the steel belt, arguably, of the world. Our appetite for steel, by and large, hasn't stopped. Yes, other countries have figured out ways to, through the effects of their workforce, not necessarily an improvement on Henry Bessemer and Andrew Carnegie's methodology, but by in some cases engaging in human rights abuses, some countries are producing steel cheaper than we can put it on the market. When we have to pay for workman's comp, we have to pay for health insurance and benefits. Steel coming out of other countries made by human beings that don't have those luxuries eventually made America unable to continue to compete 
starting in the late 1970s that would turn America's steel belt into America's rust belt because these massive structures, some of the largest structures ever built in the world, how technically do you tear these things down? Where do you put all of the material once they're torn down? The massive size of these things just made the idea incomprehensible. So these structures were largely just abandoned and left to rust away. But again, as I say, that doesn't stop the world's appetite for steel because we are doing different things with steel than we never thought possible. Once again, pause the podcast and look up online the Twisting Tower of Dubai. That's a building that I happened to see when I was there in Dubai. I actually saw the foundation of that building being dug. The building is now just about complete. And the owners of the Twisting Tower of Dubai, how could they build an extremely tall structure, very tall high-rise, with offices and condominiums inside? Because you see, that's one of the drawbacks of every high-rise. In every high-rise, there's always a best view. If the high-rise is along a lake, a river, or an ocean, well, the apartments, condos, and offices that face the water always command a better rate. They can be sold at a higher price. The units that don't look that way and look onto the city or the lesser scenic areas command much less money. Is there a way, designers in Dubai thought, entrepreneurs in the uh, city-state of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East, is there a way that they could build or create a building that truly every unit inside would have a view of the Persian Gulf, a view of downtown Dubai, and a view, of which I've seen myself and couldn't agree more, of the beautiful Saudi Arabian desert to the south? Is it possible to build a building where they would have all three of these? Impossible, so it was thought, until the entrepreneurs came across an architectural firm back in no other country than the United States, specifically in Chicago, that designed for them a building where the floors and the units technically move 360 degrees. A very, very slow turn. Every unit in that building will, in a 24-hour period, have every view around that building. You see, we might be able to build cheaper and faster, but that doesn't mean that America, as well as the world's intellect, doesn't look for ways to possibly do things a little bit differently than has ever been done before. It is truly a testament to the human spirit and human curiosity. But steel for a high-rise, listeners, is absolutely useless. Who wants to traipse up more than three or four flights of stairs? As it is in the building that I'm in, I'm on the ground floor in room 118. My mailbox is up on the third floor. I don't care. I take the stairs up there. But what if I was in a building with 10 or more stories? Who wants to rent, much less buy units? that have all those stairs to climb. And that's the reason why Carnegie couldn't have gone vertical that far with his steel. 
unless an individual by the name of Otis had not been come around to figure out a way to make a steel cage that could actually go from floor to floor all the way up and then all the way back down. The elevator is what allowed buildings to rise beyond five stories. Yes, steel made it physically possible. The elevator made the human demand possible. And as a result, for the first time, rent would actually go up instead of down with each increasing level that one rented or one bought a floor or a unit. That would be the case, ironically enough, until 9-11. Immediately in the years after 9-11, the infamous terrorist attacks in the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the plane taken down by heroes in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, it would be after 9-11 that for the first time since before the dawn of the elevator, that rent actually was going down the further up you went in a, in a given skyscraper or structure. Because before 9-11, humans had no idea just how easy it was to take passenger airliners and fly them into tall buildings. Now people wanted to be as close to the ground floor as possible, rather than up high. As the 2000s got into the 2010s, that trend is reversing itself back to the way it was, where the higher one goes, the higher the rent. But it is a slow-moving process. When we come back then, in our eighth podcast in the second half of U.S. history, we're going to take one last little glimpse of our discussion on steel with steel by looking at, arguably, one of the most impressive steel structures throughout all of the United States. And the steel structure that we have wasn't something that we actually made on our own. It was a gift to the United States from another country. And the gift was a total embarrassment to the American government. What is that structure I'm talking about? Well, I haven't gotten that far in the history book, so let me get back there, look that up, and then we'll talk about this and start with that again in our eighth podcast next time. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week.